0: G'day everyone, great to see you all, uh, Josh and Nikki are away on a well-earned holiday so you've got the uh, reserve grade preacher in instead and then next week we get the super preacher which is Marcus, so I'm, I'm here next week to hear Marcus but uh, tonight you've got me so uh, you're, you're going to have to cope and we're going to be sharing the Lord's Supper together later as well so praise God for that, why did I pray? and then let's get into it together. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pray for Josh and Nikki, and we thank you for their work amongst us and we pray that they have a great time away and a time of real relaxation and refreshment uh, as a family and so Father, we pray that you'll bring them back to us refreshed and ready to go. But now, Father, help us to set aside the things that might distract us and concentrate on listening to you speak by your word uh, as well as thinking on this difficult topic that we're going to cover tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been getting into this new series with the, uh, the interesting colour scheme I, I found. Sophie, our daughter, said to me it looked like a gender reveal party, the blue, the blue and the pink. And last week when I was preaching Carlton, I had a blue and pink shirt on, amazingly, and it was sort of like I was, I was in the theme. But I haven't done that for you tonight. Sophie told me I shouldn't wear that shirt ever again. Um, that's what teenage daughters do for you. So, uh, for the last two weeks we've been getting into this series, we are calling it Respectable Sins and Neglected Virtues. And so the first week was an introduction, uh, and then last week Josh looked at uh, sing- sins and virtues of the tongue, of our speech, and so forth. Uh, and so, but before we get into this week's topic, uh, there's one point I just want to stress as I start. Uh, it's a point I made in my introduction sermon uh, over at Carlton a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it's this. It's really important as we think about sins and virtues, putting off sin and putting on virtue, to remember that the starting point is God's grace. Uh, I would hate anyone to come to church for this series and think that you earn God's love by your efforts, that you earn God's love by putting off these sins and, and putting on virtues, because no, 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 remember we're thinking about these things because God has already loved us. You don't put off sin to earn God's love, you put off sin because God has washed you clean he's forgiven you we saw it in Romans he has made you a new person and now as that new person we say let's live for Jesus let's live to please him Uh, and so that's why we're thinking about these things we've already been declared righteous so now as dearly loved children of God we say how can we live for him and we try and put off sin and put on righteousness that's I want you to keep that in mind in fact so and sometimes people really struggle with this Uh, a person who has not come to know Jesus cannot please God Uh, it's really important to understand that because you can make all the effort in the world to put off these sins a person could come along and and say yes I'm going to work on these areas of my life and I'm going to try and be better well you're, you're not going to meet God's standards we need to be washed clean we need to be forgiven we need a new heart and only then can we live to please God uh, more than that God is not pleased by our efforts if they're driven by our desire to be better he wants us to know him and he wants us to trust in his son and it's then out of faith that we seek to live for him so I just want to get that straight right from the start and I, I sort of want to repeat that every week to make sure we don't get this the wrong way round. we've always got to get it the right way around that we put off sin because God has already loved us Now, in this little series, though, we're thinking about what we're calling five respectable sins and their corresponding virtues, five areas of sin that perhaps we don't take as seriously as God's word would have us do, and five areas of godliness perhaps we don't treasure as much as God wants us to treasure them. Whatever areas we cover, like sins of the tongue last week, they're all important. So don't hear me saying any sermon is more or less important than another. But today I am dealing with what I believe is the number one besetting sin of St. George North Anglican Church. I do not claim to be a prophet, uh, but on this occasion I sort of do. I am saying across you know, over 500 and something you know, people, from five-year-olds to 99-year-olds, across all our congregations... This is our besetting sin. Uh, now, if I did a survey... So don't worry, I'm not singling out the 430 congregation of Bexley North. I'm saying everyone. Now, if I did a survey of our whole parish, I'm sure people would come up with all sorts of sins that are our main sin, if you like. And, and you might think of all sorts of, sort of other sins... When I say that, and chances are we'll deal with some of them in this series if we haven't already, Uh, and I think if you ask people outside the church, they'd say, ah, so he's going to talk about sex then, or he's going to talk about pornography, because the world thinks that's the sin we're interested in uh, as a church more than any other, which is just a, a lie. It's the world that's interested in that, which is why the Bible has to talk about it. But no, no, hands down, by so far that the others are not even in the same stadium, the besetting sin of St George North including of its senior minister is greed now, as I say at this point you might say wow are you saying you know St George North is a particularly greedy church no I'm not saying that in fact in my experience our church is an incredibly generous church now I believe this is our besetting sin because it is the sin of every church I'm aware of in Sydney or for that matter the whole western world Uh, And in fact, it's the sin that every Christian struggles with because we just live in a world that is driven by greed. Everything about our world is driven by greed and by money and possessions. If you think about it, what is the government's number one aim? It is to keep the economy growing. And if the economy slows down, what do we do? Well, we all get a check for $500 to go and buy a TV to help the economy. That's that's what the government does. The, The way we just chase after more and more and more, even when we already have so much, I think if people, even 40 years ago, came in and looked at us now, looked at our society now, and if they came into our church now, they would be horrified by what we think we need and by what we think is normal, and by what we think we deserve. The way we obsess over real estate, I find it always amazing when you open the newspaper, just how much of it is given over. When it's not given over to 50 pages of Harvey Norman ads for new televisions and computers, it's real estate. That's what we obsess The way we upgrade a device when we have a perfectly good working device. We we are part of a society and a system that has normalised greed. Uh, And so as Christians who live in this world, that greed shapes us. I think one of our problems in so many areas of godliness, but especially in this one, is that we Christians tend to use the world as our standard. So we just think if we're we're just a bit better than people who don't know Jesus, we're doing okay. Uh, The problem here is our world is totally greedy. So being a little bit better, being 20% better than our world, is nothing. It's nowhere near what Jesus wants to be. I used an illustration. It's a bit like saying, I want to be on Cape York and then saying, well, I've got to Hornsby. That's okay. No, you're just a tiny bit further north than you were an hour ago, but you're nowhere near the destination. And that's what it's like here. I think this is our, the modern Western Christian, this is our spiritual blind spot, far more than many of the sins that get all the attention and the airplay. Having said that, I don't think it's just our culture I don't think it's just our time, uh, even if we've taken greed and normalised it like no one has before us. Uh, I think if you went back another 40 years, they'd be shocked by the generation after them. And if you went back 40 years, they'd be shocked. Because this has been, the human heart hasn't changed since Adam and Eve. And and so greed has always been a besetting sin. And and if you want to realise that, just look at how much of Jesus' teaching is about money and possessions. Do a little exercise if you've got time this week. Just go and read one of the four Gospels. Just sit and read it like a novel, Uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. If you read, just with a pen in your hand, make a note of just how many times Jesus talks about money. It is over and over again. Just, you know, the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus listens to Jesus, turns from his sin. What does he do? He goes back and pays four times what he's stolen from people. Think of the story of the rich young ruler. He says, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus says, well, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and I just go on. The Sermon on the Mount is just every story just about is about money. The parable of the rich fool, the story of the lady with her last little coin at the temple. Time and time again Jesus says what you do with your money and your possessions shows the reality of your heart, shows the reality of faith and repentance but despite the amount of the Bible devoted to it, greed does seem to be one of these respectable sins or Acceptable sins amongst Christians. I wonder if that's because greed is hard to define. When someone is drunk, it's obvious. You can say that's drunkenness. That's wrong. When someone swears, it's obvious. You say, "Hey, don't swear." When someone speaks a harsh word, it's obvious. But but greed is not like that. You know, one man's luxury is another man's necessity. And who's to say who needs what? How much money do I need? Have you ever thought about that question? How much money do I actually need? Or is it what I want? How big a house do I need? How many holidays do I need to go on? What type of car do I need? They're not questions the Bible gives a yes or no answer to. uh, Because greed is about the heart. It's about attitude. So I'm just going to warn you now, tonight is going to be a thoroughly dissatisfying sermon. Because I'm not going to answer all those questions because the Bible doesn't give you a clear answer on those questions uh, and more than that, another reason I think we struggle with greed is because we're very good at spotting it in other people rather than in ourselves. You know that? You know when you, you look and you say, yes, well, that's greedy. And then you think, but hey, what am I doing? The reality is, though, even if it's hard to define, even if it's hard to capture, Jesus makes radical calls in this area. And really, as I say, I want to just start us all thinking today. I want to start us thinking, what would it look like to not just be a little bit better than our greedy world, what would it look like to take Jesus seriously in this area? Which all goes to say we need to think about this, greed, and we need to think about the other side of the coin, the virtues of contentment and generosity. So let's get going. You'll need your outline to follow along, so make sure you get your outline, but things will come up on the screen as well. And I want to start with the Bible's view of money and possessions because the first thing to say is it's really important to see that money and possessions are not evil in and of themselves. Sometimes Christians have misquoted that Bible verse that Don read for us before, and they say money is the root of all evil. Uh, It doesn't actually say that if you're following along. Uh, It says money is a root of all kinds of evil. Uh, And so Christians have read that, and they've said, all right, well, we've got to withdraw from the world. We've got to take a vow of poverty. We're going to give everything away. And some religious orders still do that. You can still see some orders around the world that do that. The Bible, though, actually has two prongs of its view of money and possessions. And in my experience, there is a small percentage of Christians who really need to hear the first prong. We all got to hear it, but there's some of us who really need to hear it. And that is that God gives us this creation, including money and possessions, to be enjoyed within the limits set by his word. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. It'll come up on the screen. Come to the next one, there it is. It says, For everything created by God is good and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. So what you see there is that the right attitude to God's creation is not to shun it and withdraw like a monk into, into a monastery. No, no, no. no. Uh, things that God has given us are good and they're to be enjoyed with, with thanksgiving. God, God wants us to enjoy the good things of his creation the whole idea of withdrawing like a, out into a monastery started within like a hundred years of Jesus uh, and it started around Palestine and Egypt and those sort of places where people would go out into the desert and the, the most extreme of them would live on top of a pole so you can read about this in the history books they would go and live out in a pole because that way I can't be tempted by the things of this world I always think the incredible irony of it is they were reliant on other people who had money to come and provide for them So if you think about it, they're withdrawing, but what about the other people? But anyway, that's the way the human heart works. Now, the right attitude is to give thanks to God for his good things, to enjoy it, but to do that within the limits that God's word sets. So it is not inherently wrong to own a house. It's not inherently wrong to go on a nice holiday. It's not inherently wrong to enjoy a a nice meal. In fact, it is right to receive God's good gifts With thanksgiving. That's the first prong. And some Christians need to hear that. But I don't think most of us need to hear that side of the coin. In my experience, most modern Christians do not have any struggle at all enjoying God's good creation. I certainly don't. I'm very good at it, I'm gifted in that area of godliness. We need the other prong. We need the other strand of the Bible's teaching, and that is that those good gifts from God, and especially money, can very quickly become dangerous for us and lead us away from God. And this is just a massive theme of the Bible. So for instance, Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 will come up on the screen. This is what he says. He says, Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And then he goes on, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 there, I think that captures so much of what we need to see on this area. Where your heart is, there your treasure goes. And it works both directions. So what you spend your money on, or where you put your money, because savings is sometimes a way of being greedy, just as much as spending... Where you put your money shows the reality of where your heart is. If it's all about this world, that's where your heart is. Or if it's in things that last for eternity, that's where your heart is. But it's the other way as well. Where we spend our money, often our heart follows. So it's sort of like a circle, how it works. But then Jesus goes on, look at what he says. He says, no one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. I always find it amazing how Jesus just throws out these truth bombs, I call them. Even when you're reading the Gospel, you can't get a chapter without Jesus saying something that makes you go, Oh, that's uncomfortable. And this is one of those bombs, and even if we struggle with it, we just know his words are true, don't we? We all know exactly what he's saying here. We, we know deep down. Even as we hoard our possessions... We know full well, I can't take it with me when I die. Even as we we, we know our houses, we know our holidays, we know our share portfolios or our bank accounts, we know they aren't that important. We know that. We know what Jesus is saying, but we also know our hearts and how they're never satisfied. We know that often our desire is not for heavenly things, it's for a nicer house or the next iPhone or whatever it is. We know that all too often what we long for is not to be with our Lord, It's for our next experience that we can pay for with our money here on earth. And so we know in our hearts that Jesus is right about the two masters. We know you can't have two masters. But even so, we like to think maybe I'm the person who can try. Yes, Jesus is my Lord. Yes, heaven is my home. But gee, I really like nice things here on earth. See, human sin is a really funny thing. What we do is we take wonderful good things the good gifts of God's creation. Remember Genesis 1, God says, and it was good. We take the good things and we take them and instead of receiving them with thanksgiving and giving the glory to God, we let them consume us and drive us and take the place of God in our lives. And that's what Paul means when he says this in Ephesians chapter five. He says, for no one recognized this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater, does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. There's so much in that little verse, just look at it. Notice how he he points out that greed is just as serious as sexual immorality, that's something. But the point I want us to really focus on is he says to be greedy is to be an idolater. To be greedy is to deny Jesus, which actually takes it to a whole other level, doesn't it? See, idolatry in the Old Testament is the worst of sins. It's the essence of sin in the Old Testament is to take the glory that is for God and to give it to something He made, a statue made of stone. Or wood. Think about the first two commandments that, that, that focus on this in the Ten Commandments. Idolatry is the heart of sin. And so Paul's point here is for many of us, our idols, the alternative gods we worship, are not little statues, they are money. And wealth, and real estate, and experiences, and frankly, just stuff. Brian Rosner has a great book. I brought it with me. I remembered this book, Beyond Greed. Who's, who's read that book before? I know I've mentioned it here. A few people have. It's a great. If you're interested out in tonight, really easy read, and you can order it just from Matthias Media. They've got plenty of copies. I asked their distributor this week, uh, but uh, it's really worth reading because it's very challenging. But he picks up on Ephesians five, verse five, and this is what he says. He says, the most disturbing thing about the fact that greed is idolatry is that hardly anybody owns up to being a worshipper. Imagine the response of disbelief in the local church if it were revealed that the vast majority of its members were secretly worshipping other gods. So just imagine, you know, if we came here and everyone said, I've got a little shrine with a, with a Buddha at home or I've got a Baal at home. But he says, go on to the next slide, yet if our analysis of the religion of money is right, the unthinkable may not be so far from the truth worth thinking about it isn't it is it so normal the worship of money that we don't even realize that we're doing it the next passage I want us to see is 1 Timothy 6 Uh, we read it before here the apostle Paul is warning us how easy it is to make money your idol look at what he says he says but those who want to be rich fall into temptation a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It's a famous verse, isn't it? And as I said before, people misquote it. They love to say money is the root of all evil. No, it's love of money. That's the problem. Uh, And it's not all evil. It's all kinds of evil because I think pride and lust and other things do a pretty good job of inciting evil as well. It's not just money. But don't let the fact that people overstate it Take away its power. The truth is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we know this is true. If you look there, he talks about how it plunges people into ruin and destruction. He he talks about how people pierce themselves with many pains when money gets in the way. And we know it's true. If you've ever seen families fight over a will, or if you've ever been a part of that, you know once money gets into the equation... All sorts of other sins follow very quickly, don't they? Selfishness, hurtful words, or everything, even, even physical violence when money is in the equation. I was talking to someone after the sermon here this morning and they said, Phil, it's so true. you I work as a lawyer in wills. And they said, let me tell you, what you say is absolutely right. But the warning Paul is giving us here is bigger than that. You see, the desire to be rich, greed, doesn't just damage our human relationships, it ruins our relationship with God. That's, that's his point here. You See, more than any other thing, earthly treasures, the desire for wealth and or security here on earth, more than any other thing, they lead people to wander away from their faith. And again, we just know this is true, don't we? We, we just know we've seen it in Christian friends who get caught up in chasing the things of the world and before you know it, they've wandered away. But we know it in ourselves, how easily we get distracted from trusting in Jesus by the lure of money and possessions and just the things of this world. No one makes a conscious decision to stop worshipping Jesus and worship real estate. No one says, I'm a worshipper. No one makes a conscious decision to stop worshipping Jesus and start worshipping holidays. People don't make a conscious decision. Those things just slowly become the focus of our lives. And the reality is, as our comfort levels rise, our zeal for serving Jesus cools. Our longing for heaven fades the more we find security and comfort here in this world. As I say, very few people make a conscious decision to stop worshipping Jesus and start worshipping money. It just happens. Here's the thing though. I think every Christian here would say, Amen. To everything I have said so far tonight. I hope you would because I've really just been quoting the Bible at great length for the last few minutes. Everyone here agrees. Love of money is a dangerous thing. We all agree. Don't want to be greedy. Greedy is not good. We all think rich people need to be really careful. The problem is no one here thinks that they are rich. No one thinks that they are greedy because there is always someone who has more than me. There's always those really wealthy people and they live in the eastern suburbs or something. They don't live around Bexley or... You see, and as I said at the start, as Christians we sometimes think, as long as I'm just a bit less greedy and a bit more generous than non-Christians, then I must be doing okay. I just want to say to you tonight, brothers and sisters, the poorest amongst us, the poorest in our fellowship are very, very rich compared to most people in our world at the moment and compared to most people throughout history. The things we just take for granted would put us in the the top whatever percent of wealthiest people in the world and in history. We need to think about all sorts of sins the Bible raises and all sorts of virtues. But I am convinced this is our universal issue. Even the most worked out Christian on this area in the Western world needs to think some more about this. So what is the answer to the problem of greed? Well, the Bible actually gives a really simple answer. The opposite of greed is contentment in Christ and generosity. There's two opposites of it, if you like. The remedy to greed is to actually find our security, our meaning, our contentment in Jesus rather than in money and and things And that will then show itself in generosity. So we looked at Matthew 6 before on the negative side. It's going to come up on the screen again. Look at it with me. But here I want you to hear the positive side from Jesus. So he says, Don't collect for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, find your meaning and life in me. Put, put Put your hopes in me, in Jesus, that is, not in your possession. Find your security in Jesus, not in your house, not in your superannuation nest egg. Find your contentment in Jesus, not in your next trip and your next experience. Recognize that what matters in this broken and transitory life, what matters is eternity. It's actually just a logical investment, if you think about it. If you believe in Jesus, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you believe you've got maybe, depending on your age here, 20, 30, 40, 50 years left on this. Well, I'm not going to judge who's got however many. but, But that's what you've got, haven't you? But you've got a billion, trillion, zillion years in eternity with Jesus. So why on earth would you waste your money... And, and, and your life on things that are going to rust and fade and, and burn away anyway in 20, 30, 40, 50 years when you could be investing in things that matter for eternity. That's what Jesus is saying here. Find your contentment in me. You see, surely you want to accumulate heavenly treasures that you'll enjoy for all eternity. If you believe this life is all there is, then eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. It, if, if I wasn't a Christian... I'd just be out there. If if this life is all there is, I'd be sucking the life out of it, so to speak. But I live for eternity because I know Jesus. If you know Jesus, live for it. Trust God to provide. Be content with what he provides and live for him. That will then work itself out in an attitude of contentment with much less than we think we need. You see, we've looked at 1 Timothy 6 already tonight, but just before the warning against the rich that we read before, there is a wonderful encouragement, look at it on the screen it says but godliness with contentment is a great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it but if we have food and clothing we will be content with these see that is godliness godliness is actually saying I've got what I need God gives me enough I don't need all these things I think I want I don't always need my wants fulfilled contentment But you can't manufacture contentment. If our heart is with Jesus in heaven, then contentment flows. But if our heart is focused here in this world, we'll never be content. Now, what's the problem with all of this that I've been saying? We all want some laws to follow. That's the problem. I said it at the start. I told you it's going to be dissatisfying. Here's where I dissatisfy you. See, we want to know when do I cross that line into greed? When is it that I'm enjoying God's good creation? When is it greed? uh, What is acceptable to spend on myself? How much am I allowed to save? We all want answers. We're all Pharisees at heart. We all want laws to follow. Just tell me what to do. But Christianity is not about laws. A Christian is someone whose heart is being changed by the Holy Spirit, who's longing to live for Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't give us laws here. He says live for eternity. There's his guidance. It's about the attitude rather than obeying laws. Now, Having said that, I think there are some decisions we make that are very hard to ever justify. When we buy the next iPhone, I know nothing about it, the iPhone 149, (laughs) when we've got a perfectly good 148B or whatever it is, you you know, and we just want that next thing. Don't call it anything else. It's just Greed. what it is when when we're sitting at home watching our 68 inch plasma tv on the wall then we say but gee the footy looked better with an 86 oh I don't even know what these things are but you know what I mean like that that is greed don't try and just like yeah I'm gonna have people from church over to watch it with me no it's it's greed it's what so even though it's not laws there there are things that are just so clearly greed don't pretend we can justify them our consumer society is built on greed And when we follow it, we're just being greedy. But sometimes two people might make exactly the same decision and one is driven by greed and the other not. And in that regard, as I say, it's about attitudes rather than laws. But that leads to the other virtue that is the remedy to greed, which is generosity. I'm not going to focus so much on that tonight because we're doing our series in gospel teams on generosity. Uh, I, I said it, Carlton, I said, oh, our group's had such a great time in the first week of uh, these generosity studies. And I looked out at my gospel team and they were all sitting there like, hmm, maybe, you know. Uh, I thought, I th- well, I, I have as the leader. But I hope you're having a better time than my group are having with me leading. But uh, I hope you benefit from those studies. But the point I'll make here about generosity is being radically generous is both the sign of true contentment and the way to combat greed and grow in contentment. So, you see what I'm saying? So, when we're generous, it's a sign of contentment, but it's also a way to actually learn how to be content. Don't wait to be content to be generous, because it's by being generous that God teaches us to be content. It's like a circle. See, if you truly believe God is good and that everything you have comes from him, you won't be anxious. You'll be content with what you have and you're liberated to be generous. See, the greedy person hoards what they have. Godly contentment will always show itself in outlandish generosity. But also, God encourages us to be generous to teach us that. You see, that's why God always focused on, he says, give generously from your first fruits. You know that theme that's all through the Old Testament? Give from your first fruits. He means in their day, when the first fruits come on the tree, give those to God. And the point is, by doing that, not only are you being generous, you're trusting God to provide from the rest. And I think that principle applies through to the New Testament. You see, when we give from our leftovers, that's actually a sign we don't trust God. It's like, I'll give and I'll be generous once I'm pretty certain I've got everything covered. Thanks, God. But when we give from our first fruits, when we set aside a generous proportion to God, but before anything else, God uses that to teach us contentment, to teach us to trust him. There's an element of faith in giving from our first fruits. I think that's behind those great verses in 2 Corinthians 9. The last verses we'll look at tonight. Well, actually, second last. He says this, Remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also will also reap sparingly and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. See, I think what he's talking about there is giving from your first fruits, giving it generously setting it aside, working it out, being generous in advance. And the, sadly, these verses have been abused by by false teachers in churches around the place. What we call the prosperity gospel. You've heard of the prosperity gospel, where teachers say, "If you give generously, God will give you back lots more money." That is not what they are saying. Those verses are saying something far more wonderful, which is, if you so generously, you will reap generously things that are far more important than a bigger bank account. You will learn contentment. You will learn joy. You will will know the joy that only a Christian who's been generous can ever know when the money you have given has led to people coming to know Jesus. See, the the reaping generously from the sowing generously is not your bank account will be doubled. It's, It's so much better than that. It's offering you joy that the world can never provide you knowing that what you have given has done something for eternity. See, that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about investing treasures in heaven. When we sow generously, that action teaches us to be content because we learn that God is good and he does provide even when we've been generous. But I'll leave you to explore that more in your gospel team studies. As we close, what are we to do in the light of this respectable sin and this neglected virtue? I said at the start, I really just wanted to get us thinking tonight start the ball rolling but here's three quick fire final thoughts. Firstly I want to say I think we need to get serious about thanking God for how blessed we are. We actually need to grow in contentment and thankfulness. We need to stop thinking all we have is ours and see it for what it is a blessing from God to be used for his glory. I made the great mistake I never listened to the radio, but I, I turned on one of those AM radio stations as I was in the car the other day and, and the the person I don't even know who he was, the DJ, whatever they're called, said, Yes, God helps those who help themselves and you know, and and I'm I'm not thankful I've earned everything I've got and so forth. And I think what did you make the decision that you were born here rather than Ethiopia? do you see how silly it is when we take the credit for what we have? Everything we have comes from God. And we need to get serious about having an eternal perspective rather than being so caught up in this world. That's my first encouragement. We need to get serious about thanking God for how blessed we are. Second thing tied to that, we need to question ourselves and our motives honestly and seriously about our use of money. That's what I want to invite you to do tonight, to actually think hard on it. We need to make sure we actually let ourselves feel the tension of what Jesus says about how we use our money. My biggest concern is when I make decisions about how I spend my money or what I save or all those sort of things and I look no different to my non-Christian friends and family. There's something wrong there isn't there If, if, if it's not radically different. So let's get serious about the reality of our sin of greed. Let's recognize it for what it is and repent of it and I speak here not in judgment but in solidarity if you like as a fellow forgiven sinner. I need to repent in this area, so I think you do probably as well. Uh, So I want to just say, let's ask questions of ourselves. Do I actually need this? Or do I just want it? What are my motives? Why do I want this? What's behind this? Why am I chasing things all the time? Is there actually a better use of my money? Am I being generous with what God has given me, or am I just giving out of my leftovers? See there might be good positive answers to those questions but if we're not questioning ourselves, we don't feel the tension then I fear our hearts are hardened. My big point and my final point is we have to work at finding contentment where we're meant to find it. Our contentment should be found in Christ and then it actually should come from the relationships that flow out of our faith in Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Too often We look for joy and we look for contentment in the things of this world. And what happens then is we find they can't bear the weight, first of all, and we're always seeking more and we need the next experience or we need more or a bigger house or whatever it is. That's the first thing. But more than that, as we look there, our joy and our contentment in Christ fades away. See, what needs to happen is we need to be amazed by Christ. We need to be getting to know Jesus better, loving him more. And then we won't seek after the things of this world. I'm going to get the book of Proverbs to be the last word. It'll come off on the screen. We read it before, but I want to read it again. Proverbs chapter 30. It says, Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And then it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. See, that is biblical wisdom about money. Give me neither poverty nor riches. See, don't, don't give me too much, God. Don't give me too much. I know I, I will fall into that trap of seeking after the things of this world. Don't give me too much. Give me enough so that I don't have to be a sinner in other ways where I'm, where I, I'm needing to steal. But that's the wise and godly attitude. Give me neither poverty nor riches. So why don't I pray that God would give us hearts that reflect that wisdom. Heavenly Father, we are very aware of the way we live in a world that is driven by greed and driven by consumerism and we know all too well how easily we just follow along. And so Father, help us to be open to seeing the challenges of your word in this area. Help us to be people who test ourselves who question ourselves, who don't just follow along with the world but also especially help us to be people who find true contentment in Christ, whose hearts are set on heavenly things and so who don't want to chase after the things of this world and Father help us to be radically and sacrificially generous giving from our first fruits both because we are content and to teach us contentment but Father we also know that we fall in this area like many others and we struggle And so, Father, we thank you that we know the wonderful forgiveness that we only find in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.